Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Good morning, Jesus 911. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Ruben Nava, Jesse Romero. We make up a two-man car, 10-8 for Jesus. And uh, Jesse, we've got some some good topics we want to go over today. And the first one will it's pretty disturbing. And um but it's gotta be said, Ruben. This is the yeah. this is the state of the world of the church right now. Hey, let me just um read today's psalm from Mass today, just to start off the show. It's one right. of my favorite psalms. Psalm 144. And then we'll then we'll start the show. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for battle, my fingers for war. My mercy and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. Oh God, I will sing a new song to you with a ten-string lyre. I will chant your praise. You who give victory to kings and deliver David, your servant, from the evil sword. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. That's a good song to start the morning with, Reuben. It's a battle song. song. Amen. And, and that's what we're in. We're in a war. We're in a war culturally. And we're in a war within our own church, Ruben. Very well. Very well said, Jesse. So uh, we so go what's to... Happen, what's happened over the pond, across the pond? Oh, boy. Uh, we have... Uh, the courts have uh, overturned a sentence of a feminist who simulated aborting Jesus on a Catholic altar while topless and urinating. What do you think and, would have happened to her, Ruben, if she would have done that in a mosque? They were nothing, you know. They, well, no, no, no. I'm saying they wouldn't have convicted her. They, uh, or I take that back. They would have slammed her with this. But because it's a Catholic church, she gets. It's like no big deal, you know. No harm, yeah, no I, foul. I even think beyond that. I think she would have never made it out of the mosque alive. Oh. She would have been. She would have been cut uh, into a dozen pieces or hung uh, on a telephone pole or been beheaded right there inside the mosque or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, it's they, they, yeah, they, quite possible. Yeah. Got a good yeah point and nothing would have happened to the Muslims either, by the way. But so let's, let's jump into this article. The European Court of Human Rights, called the ECHR, recently overturned the ruling of a French court that had fined and jailed, a, that had fined and issued a jail sentence to a feminist who interrupted a Roman Catholic church service called a mass and aborted Jesus on the altar while topless you can see the pictures i mean it's blacked out but you can see the pictures of her as people were snapping pictures uh her name is eloise butin she was bare-breasted and painted in pro-choice slogans all over her body when in december 2013 she interrupted christmas carols at paris famous madeline church and protested the catholic church's teachings against abortion by simulating an abortion of jesus Wearing a crown of thorns to mock Jesus Christ and a blue veil to deride the Virgin Mary. Putin carried pieces of ox livers to symbolize an aborted baby as she stood in front of the church altar and pretended to perform an abortion before urinating on the ground in front of the congregants. Written on Putin's body at the time was the French phrase 344 Salopi, which translates to 344th slut in reference to an open letter of 343 French women admitted to having an abortion in 1971 here's my comment this is the this is the gravest sin that you can commit 
of the Ten Commandments, the Catholic Church has always taught that the worst commandment to break of all ten is the first commandment. And this is exactly what she broke. I am the Lord thy God, that shall have no strange gods before me. This is a blasphemy and profanity of the sacred falls under the first commandment. I hope this young lady, she did this several years ago. I mean, but this is ongoing, Ruben, with these uh, feminists around the world. I hope she's repented because as it stands right now, again, if you die in unrepentant, unconfessed mortal sin, you will merit hell. Go ahead, Ruben. That's right. Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jesse, she's got to be, this is got. This is demonic. I mean, this yes, is yes. the ultimate uh, th yes. that you could, you have no fear of God that you go in there to a, to a Catholic church and desecrate it like this. And uh, I, I'm surprised that she even got that far. Why, why, where was everybody to, where were you know, the men? Right. They, they, you I know, would they, have rushed her. I would have thrown a, a sweater and coat over, grabbed her by the arms and dragged her outside and held her for the police. Yeah. Well, you and, know and, how, and, 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 yeah. Nowadays, everybody just picks up their camera and starts snapping or videotaping instead of getting into action. You know, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. So she's she's no uh, this is she's not a uh, a newcomer to this. She's the Ukrainian group Femin. She which she Bouton used to be a member of. Later celebrated the act on social media, writing, "Quote Christmas is canceled." End quote, and that. The Holy Mother Eloise, they're calling her, the Holy Mother Eloise has just aborted the embryo of Jesus on the altar of Madeline. Wow. Yeah. Look, you notice know, where she's from. She's from she's from Ukraine. I mean, this is the, this is the woke country. We're at war right now, backing up this woke country that's trying to, uh, that's trying to, uh, I, I, again, they're just trying to promote this, this woke culture beyond their borders and into Russia. And that's one of the things that Putin is standing against. But let's go back to this article. So the church priest filed a legal complaint against Putin, who was found guilty by French court of an unlawful sexual display. She was sentenced to more than a month in prison in order to pay the church 2,000 euros, a punishment Francis High Court upheld. So in an opinion rendered October 13th, the feast of the uh, uh, Our Lady of Fatima, right? Strasbourg based uh, the ECHR ruled that by punishing Putin for her display, France violated the article of the European Convention on Human Rights that protects freedom of expression. The, Jesse, this is how jacked oh, up our country is, man. that they would kowtow to, to the criminal rather than the victim. In this case, the, the church and all who were present that had to witness this, there were all the victims. Do you think that for one minute, if this radical demonized feminist had, had done this inside a mosque, that we'd even be having this conversa conversation? Of course not. Nope. Because the powers that be are afraid of, uh, uh, and they are sympathetic to the Muslims, but it's open season in the Catholic Church. What a disgrace. But you know one thing about the fact that she went to a Catholic Church, this uh, Luciferian, uh, you know, uh, uh, lady, Yeah, she knows intuitively in her heart, which is the one true religion started by God through Christ. Notice she didn't do this in, a, in, in Benny, Benny Hinn's church or Joe Holstein or some mega Protestant church or the Baha'i church or some Hindu temple or Buddhist temple. She did this. Reuben, the enemies of God, these Luciferian Satanists, by their actions and by the church they attack, are implicitly admitting that this is the one true church on planet Earth started by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Right. And they're the, the, the church that stands up for life 
more than any other church. So, yeah, well, if it wasn't for the Catholic Church, Roe versus Wade would still be the law of the land. All right. Go ahead, Jess. Pick it up. Yeah. Um, it says wearing a blue veil, talking about the suspect or the defendant, to make fun of the Virgin Mary while carrying pieces of ox silver to symbolize an aborted baby. Booten, that's her name, stood in front of the church's altar and pretended to perform an abortion before urinating on the ground in front of the congregants. And there's pictures. You could look at these dark pictures if you want on the article. Just go to our show page, vmpr.org or jesseromero.com. You can get the links there. Nevertheless, the court considers that, as it has mentioned above, that in view of its militant nature, the action of the applicant who sought to express her political convictions in line with the positions defended by the feminine movement on whose behalf she was acting must be regarded as constituting a performance falling within the scope of the article, the opinion added. Unbelievable. If you thought our courts in the U.S. were liberal, I mean, the courts uh, in Europe, they've lost their mind, Ruben. They've absolutely lost their moral compass. It says the ECHR ordered France to the, the ECHR. That's that's the uh, European Court. Uh, what's HR stand for? Conven European Convention on Human Rights. They ordered France to pay Putin, this female Luciferian late lady, for moral damages, legal costs, and expenses. Go ahead, Ruben. I, Unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. So Gregory, yeah. Gregory crime does pay. Ruben, crime does oh. pay in some parts of the world. In this life, it'll pay. In the next life, she has a lot to answer for. That's right. So uh the the director of the European Center for Law and Justice criticized the European Court's ruling, claiming in a statement on his, his organization's website that the ECHR increasingly defends attacks against Christian churches on the continent while treating attacks against Islam differently. Mm -hmm. and 2018, it had already ruled that the blasphemous provocation of a feminist punk group, I even hate to say the name of their- The, bl their, the, the blank riots, the blank yeah, riots. <laughs> the, the blank riots uh, in, it, the, in it, the choir. It, it, it describes a woman's body part in a very profane way. Yeah. Yeah. In the choir of the Orthodox Cathedral in Moscow was a form of expression protected by the court, uh, Pupik wrote. Uh, the, the, P, uh, the P riots or the, the blank riots, lawyer formerly working for- George Soros Foundation has since become a judge. Wow, look at that. He's become a judge now at the ECHR. <laughs> so uh, Soros is, is getting his people in, in various high places so that uh, they could do this kind of damage to our justice system. The, the same court also condemned Lithuania for sanctioning blasphemous advertisements featuring Christ and the Virgin Mary Pope continued. So he also noted in 2018 that the ECHR upheld the criminal conviction of a lecturer in Austria who characterized Mohammed's sexual relationship with a nine-year-old girl, Aisha, as pedophilic. So they, they come, man, Jesse, Again, double standard. Yeah, I wonder what they say to you. <laughs> <laughs> I go around the country saying that Mohammed uh, was this child molester. I, I, yeah. I go from one Catholic church to another, and I say that when people ask me, and I've been recorded probably a hundred times saying that. He was a child molester. Uh, he married Aisha, the Quran says, at the age of six. But <clears throat> being the gentleman that he is, he waited three years to consummate the marriage at the age of nine. Now, I've, I've, I've asked Muslim in conversation, what would you call a Catholic priest or a Catholic deacon or a Catholic layman? 40-year-old guy. Now. Back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, 
Dial 888-526-2151. We are back. Jesus 911, Virgin Most Powerful, Radio, Two-Man Car, Jesse and Ruben. Uh, just finished talking about a disturbing topic, but, uh, you know, this is this is the state of the world that we're in. Jesse, we're, we're going to move over to something that that, that Bhutan female sh- could have used, some self-control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Send her, send her the article, Ruben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, R- Ruben, though, uh, it's, uh, it, yeah, we call that in Catholicism, the virtue of temperance. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, it's even it's even called in the book of Galatians. It's called one of the fruits of the Holy. You know you're a follower of Christ if you have. It's like one of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit: self control. So that's what we want to talk about, Reuben, uh, in this article. And I want to take it right from a, right down in the middle where it gets into the meat of self control, where the, the article is called. Um, let me see what's the article called here. Uh, all the way to the top. What happened to that? the idea of self-control by Brett and Kate McKay? It's actually a podcast that they transcribed. And uh, it's uh, here's what it says right down the middle. So Brett McKay asks Daniel. Brett asks Daniel. Well, let's talk about how our ideas about self-control have changed over time. And what I love about your book is that you take readers through the sort of a cultural tour of the idea of self-control, you have an entire chapter devoted to the ancient Greeks. And I love this because first, I love the ancient Greeks, but one of the things I love about the Greeks is that they have is that they thought about these complex, nuanced psychological ideas, and they just they just came up with a single word that would encapsulate it. And the Greeks had this word for self-control, and it was acrosia. So tell us about acrosia. So, so Daniel. I- yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Ruben. Daniel's yeah, so, the author of this book. Go ahead. Yeah, he says, yeah, right. Weakness of the will. And that's something they were very aware of. The wonderful thing about the Greeks. Like the you, female Bootin had Bootin, the female in the that last <laughs> she exactly. had weakness of the will. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she had a firm conviction of what she wanted to do, you know. And <laughs> the, the wonderful thing about the Greeks, as you imply, is that when you turn to them, you find all our dilemmas. All of our issues and concerns, they wrestled with it, and they did so with great clarity, even poetry. So it's interesting to look at how they coped with these issues, and it's interesting to bear in mind how they how they lived. They lived in a small in smaller communities. People knew each other. You were seen by servants. You were seen by neighbors and spouses and so forth. So it was a small world, so they paid a lot of attention to this. Plato and Aristotle in particular, they paid attention to it. Plato had the idea that what we did when if i said i'm gonna gonna eat that whole pie that, but then i went ahead and did it he said well i just changed my mind because he didn't think anybody could knowingly do something that they felt was bad a bad thing to do so i just changed my mind and for a while i thought it was a good idea and then i finished eating and maybe i realized that it wasn't <laughs> you want to take the next paragraph and, and aristotle i think had a more sophisticated or cynical view and the cynical view is the wrong word but he had a more sophisticated view in which, and he said that, as someone as someone put it, reason is dragged about by desire. And so you have the simultaneous, these conflicting desires. And he really expected us to be disciplined and to both Plato and Aristotle felt it was important 
But Aristotle expected us to be disciplined and to be accountable for ourselves and to find the mean. And he didn't mean mean, just divide everything right down the middle. He said, use judgment. Use some kind of practical wisdom to determine which pole you should be near or how much should you eat no pie? Should you eat the whole pie? Where do you belong in there? And I might add on a practical level, which I guess we'll talk about in a while, practical matters that you know it's always easier. Abstinence is always easier than temperance. That's true. So it's in some respects, easy. it's easier to have no pie than just one small piece. But in any case, the Greeks were on this. They had a whole bunch of different distinctions. Mm -hmm. Aristotle, for example, talked about the, the continent man who restrained the desires versus the temperate man who didn't have des desires that were all that powerful, say for gambling or for whatever. Infidelity or any of that sort of thing. And so they made a whole bunch of these distinctions. Aristotle in particular, but the main thing is they understood that this was a human affliction a part of the human condition, what Catholics call concupiscence, or right. fallen nature, by the way. And they understood that it can be an expression of character. So they had, I thought, a sophisticated awareness of these issues. Ruben? Yeah, just I can't even imagine uh, without the grace of baptism, you know, to so that uh, we we could have that, the, the help that we need to overcome these, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's... it's it's amazing to to think they're just basically doing it on their own self will. You know, they're, they're all they're it, all the all the other religions in the world are trying to live a virtuous life, and they're trying to do it by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. Yeah. We as Catholics have help. The Holy Spirit is helping us pull up our bootstraps so we can cooperate. Catholics have an advantage when it comes to becoming holy and getting to heaven because of the seven sacraments. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So Brett McKay asks, uh, and you talk about reason. They were likely so focused on self-control. Is that their democratic form of government? This, this idea they believe if you wanted to have a democracy that's led by free people, you needed to have people who were in control of their base desires. Well, we don't have that right now in the White House. The, the people right now, the Department of Justice, FBI, Oval Office, do not have control of their base desires. Base desires means dark, the darkness in man. We're yeah. seeing the darkest things right now in Biden and in Fauci and in others come out, uh, you know, in, in living color. 100%. So uh, Daniel answers that he says, yeah, I think that then as now, if you want to have a thriving democracy and you want a free people, these people need to be able to regulate themselves in some way that in turn requires some kind of education, some kinds of conditioning towards values, some kind of social structures that make it possible. So it's almost impossible to do this kind of thing successfully all alone. Hmm. I wonder if he's leaning towards grace there, Jesse. I'm yeah, not sounds like it. I'm not sure that can happen. So I think that democracy is absolutely dependent. Civil society is absolutely dependent on the ability of individuals to regulate their desires. One of the founding fathers, I forget who, he said the Constitution uh, was made for a moral people. So that this is exactly what this author is saying in this book on self-control. Uh, yeah, in order for us to have a return to order, a social order in our society, uh, you need a moral people because only a moral people, Ruben, 
is going to adhere to the law. And we, right. and we see that Antifa and Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, Roots Revenge, DC, Shutdown, all these anarchist groups, they know what the law says. They don't care, again, because they're, they follow their base desires, as this article says. So Brett asks, so the Greek self-control is important. You move into the Romans, and an important philosophy for a lot of Romans was the philosophy of Stoicism. And they seem to take this idea of self-control and just put it on steroids. So the author Daniel says, absolutely, that was central. I think to the Stoic conception of virtuous life, and even each of us bore the weight in the sense of his own well-being, his own outlook. The only thing you could control was your response to things, true statement. And this is pretty much the highest value to them. And that carried forward, I mean, all the way across the centuries. I mean, through the Puritans, the Victorians, and so forth, all of whom had have a bad name now. There was a bunch of party poopers and so forth. <laughs> yeah. But they did understand certain things about human nature, the way we can go off the rails, the way that society can become disorganized and violent and inhospitable to its members and to the future. All those things can happen if we don't regulate ourselves and subordinate our desires to some extent to tomorrow and to the needs of others. Yeah, I would say simple. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the blueprint for, for, a, for a social and a moral society. Treat other people like you want to be treated. Ruben? That's right. That's right. Or how about you treat people the way they want to be treated? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. sometimes I, I, I used to tell my uh, my young deputies, Jess, uh, when we would go out there, and I'd say that too, treat them as you want to be treated. But I also say, how about treating them as you would want other deputies to treat your mother, you know? Mm. When you're out there on a call and you, you're getting frustrated with these people and, and you just want to just put your hands up in the air and walk away. Okay. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, give me any information, then fine. You know, but uh, there's sometimes you, you, you cross people who are in, in panic, the people who are uh, overcome with anxiety and, and, you know, they can't think straight. Yeah. And sometimes you have to be the the level head and and be able to say, hey, look, okay, calm down, man. We'll we'll get through this, you know. Level um, head means self control. That's right. So Brent Brent uh, McKay asks, uh, okay, the Stoics had emphasis on self control, as you said. This got carried over into Christianity, where a lack of self control became a sin. A lot of, if you look at the seven deadly sins, a lot of it is it's about people who lack self control. They gave into their gluttony, their lust their vanity, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to take a quick look for a word. For, okay, we're going <laughs> to. Next, next. I, I'm doing a uh, Joe Biden right there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're reading what you should not be reading. And now, okay, so it's so he says you can see this in other cultures as well. If you look at the Chinese culture, Asian cultures, Confucianism was all about controlling yourself and making sure you're doing the right thing in a certain social context. You can see the similar things in Hinduism as well. But in the 20th century, you, ha you had this guy named Freud uh, who he put it into motion, a radical change of how we think about self-control. And he asked, uh, what's the Freud's ideas and how do they influence what we think about self-control? Daniel, the author says, well, I guess I could say that Freud's real emphasis, aside from Freud, was and his lust for renown. Freud's real emphasis was autonomy. We might say he wanted to liberate us from the taboos and constraints that we had per perhaps internalized that we didn't believe that we didn't believe in or that were oppressive to us or that were contrary to our deepest needs. 
means that were not illegitimate to, for love or whatever, and that was valuable. That was a valuable contribution by Freud. But autonomy can eventually become licensed, and there was a that was that and and that was a problem. Another aspect of Freud's work was the rise of faith and the importance of the unconscious. And you go down that road, and it's very easy to come to the the idea that maybe we don't have any conscious control over our behavior. Maybe it's all mysterious. It's all predetermined. Maybe there's not even any free will. And so you could say that he was a kind of a portal to a different outlook, a different way, uh, a different way of living, and ideas that were at both once beneficial and dangerous. I would say the latter. That's true of so many things. I suppose of money and alcohol and so many things that are both good and, and bad. And so people look. Uh, took these ideas and ran with them or kept parts that were, that were the most convenient. And here we are. Absolutely. Uh, Freud, Freud taught licentiousness. He basically taught uh, the Luciferian philosophy, you know, do as you will, you know, don't, don't, there shouldn't be any restraints. Uh, and, and the Luciferian philosophy of the satanic Bible is do as thou will. That's the whole of the law. Uh, yeah. Freud was tracking towards uh, Luciferian thought. Yeah, well, he was, I, if I remember correctly, he was a Jew. He was a Jewish uh, atheist, so he's not going to have the same kind of uh, beliefs that we're going to have. Put everybody on the couch. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 2151. We are back. Two man car, Jesse and Ruben. Uh, Jesse, I just want to add one last thing uh, on the last topic about yeah. uh, self control. As you mentioned, you know, we, we as Catholics, we call that temperance, and it's one of the four cardinal virtues. Um, it's not the greatest of the moral virtues, but uh, that rank is held by prudence. Then comes justice, fortitude, and finally temperance. So it is important, and uh, we need to uh, temper our our lower nature and uh, our concupiscence. And so, uh, yeah, we got to learn from it. But we have the uh, we have all the uh, remedies because we have the graces from from the sacraments to uh, to be able to overcome these things. You know, uh, whether it, addiction uh, of you know pornography or alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. A lot of people think they don't have any, uh, they don't have any uh, answers to it, but you know, we start, we talk about all the time. We start with a, a good confession and, and uh, you get the graces, get back to the, to the sacraments of receiving communion in a worthy manner. And we can overcome these things. Amen. And the Bible says in Romans chapter eight, we are, we are more than conquerors or we are more than overcomers uh, through Christ Jesus, through him who loved us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So anybody says that I can't, I can't. Oh no, I can't. I'm too weak. The devil made me do it. Nope. That's Flip Wilson theology. The <laughs> devil made me do it. That's not Catholic theology. The Catholic theology is, again, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And that means that you can even master, you can master your defects and imperfections and your disordered appetites. That's Catholic teaching. Hey, Ruben, want to talk. There's an article. It was written by a couple of theologians. John Cavadini, I don't know who he is. Dr. Mary Healy, she's a professor, uh, I think at Steubenville, I'm not sure. I know she's a she, she's part of the Charismatic Renewal, and she's a biblical uh, uh, scholar. And uh, Thomas Winendi, he's also uh, a very respected uh, uh, theologian. Uh, I would more consider him in the, in the uh, Novus Ordo conservative. So they write an article, all three of them, about 
the Tridentine Mass. And they make some good points, but I definitely disagree with them on some other points. So uh, let's. Uh, the article's called Why the Mass Needed to be Renewed Due to, Liturg due to Liturgical Abuses in the Tridentine Mass Prior to the Council. So we'll get right to their article. It says, the state of the liturgy prior to Vatican II. Although the liturgical renewal had percolated for approximately 60 years prior to Vatican II, it had little impact on the laity in the parish setting. The vast majority of Catholic faithful recognized that they were attending the all-holy sacrifice of the Mass and that they were receiving the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion. The Mass did create an, an, awe, an awe and reverence among the faithful. So that he, these three theologians admit that prior to 1965, People knew that the mass was a sacrifice, that it wasn't a you know, happy meal. And people knew that that was really Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. And they admit, even though they, they, they criticize the Tridentine Mass in some respect, they admit that the Tridentine Mass created an awe and a reverence among the faithful. Unlike post-1965, the average Novus Ordo Mass does not create an awe and a reverence among the faithful. The paragraph says, they go on. And again, they're criticizing the Tridentine Mass, but they get it right sometimes, and they get it wrong sometimes, and uh, we'll comment when, where I think they get it wrong. They, the, the, they write, however, for the most part, they had the mindset of being observers of a great mystery. Only the priests, along with the altar boys, were seen as actively engaged in the Eucharistic rite. I can defend the reason why the Tridentine Mass did that, because it simulated the Jewish temple service where everybody was silent in the inner court and the outer court, except the high priest who was offering the sacrifice before God inside the Holy of Holies. So the Tridentine Mass paralleled the temple sacrifice that the Jews uh, had been doing for uh, over a thousand years, goes on to say. Except at the consecration of bread and wine, when the faithful adore the elevated sacred mysteries, Accompanied by the ringing of bells, which, by the way, comes from Judaism. That's, that's an action that happened in the temple of Jerusalem. Many of the faithful engaged in their own personal forms of prayer. They had little sense of asking forgiveness of their sins during the opening penitential rite, nor did they consciously offer themselves to the Father in union with Jesus during the offertory. Now, that statement, they don't know that. They no. can't read somebody's heart. These that's, are, sub that's subjective, Jesse. Exactly. How do they know that everybody in the Trinity Mass wasn't making a penitential rite, you know, as they're striking their breast three times? How do they know that they weren't offering themselves along with Jesus Christ in the offertory? That's a subjective statement that shows their bias against the Trinity Mass. One more sentence, I'll draw, take it over to you. They write, there was little or no engagement with the scripture readings. Likewise, unless they were following along with a bilingual missal, which must, which must be said was fairly popular, they would not be praying along with the celebrant, for they could neither hear him nor understand what he was praying in Latin. Ruben, make any comments or go to the next. Oh, uh, Jesse. Well, I mean, just think. Um, how about you could just make the same claim about scripture? Um, you know, people people couldn't read and write, and, and uh, but they would hear things. They would look at pictures. They go in the church. They see the stained glass. They see the statues. They'd see. They they learned um, their faith through watching, and um, they weren't they, they weren't educated. Most of them uh, it, it costs a lot of money to get educated. So 
same thing here. You, you don't have to hear and understand everything. I, I just had a friend was saying, hey, um, my wife says she's, she's you know, uh, you know, she doesn't understand the Latin. I said, that's okay. You, you don't have to. You, you'll pick up the prayers after you've been going for a while. Yep. But just follow along on the, on the English side. And, right. uh, you know, there's some people who, that used to pray the rosary. Sometimes, uh, occasionally, I, I will be praying uh, my rosary in part of the Mass, you know, especially the Sorrowful Mysteries. Yeah. So, here we go. Here, let, me make, go let, me make, let me just defend, this, uh, defend uh, uh, my position here. Now, the reason there wasn't a lot of scripture readings in the Latin Mass, because the Latin Mass goes back all the way to the 4th or 5th century. It was started by Pope Gregory the Great, right around the 4th century. And so, remember, nobody owned a Bible back then because there was no printing press. Right. And so, nobody needed to have a three-year lectionary where, you, where you're going through all kinds of mass readings. Nobody had a Bible. The Bible wasn't, it was, it was just canon, uh, uh, canonized and codified about 100 years before the Latin Mass. And the printing press wasn't invented until the 15th century. And so, this is why the, the, the Latin Mass wasn't top-heavy on scripture readings. because. The Latin Mass was organically, it came together during a time when most people were reading the Bible. So they just try to give them the salient parts of the scripture, what was important. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Ruben. Okay. So the spiritual high point for the faithful was reverently receiving on their tongue, Holy Communion, which they rightly believed was the body, blood, soul, divinity of the incarnate and risen Son of God. However, they had little awareness that the privilege of receiving Holy Communion was founded upon they're having participated in Jesus once for all sacrifice of himself to the father for the forgiveness of sins and the outpouring of the divine life of the Holy spirit. Subjective. How this, yeah. Subjective. How do they know that? No. They, how do they, they know would, people's hearts and, and no subject, they, but, but at least they admit it that people knew the real presence of the Trinity mass. They admit that the first sentence. And I, and I would also tell you that people didn't receive communion, uh, Every Sunday, they, you know, it was once a year. It wasn't until Pius the Twelfth, uh, excuse me, Pius the Tenth, who who made uh, receiving communion on a regular basis. He's the one who introduced that. Yes. So, and significantly, while the faithful knew and believed that the one God is a Trinity of persons, their liturgical and personal prayer often primarily consisted of praying to the one generic God. What's the uh, matter with that? What do you mean, yeah. generic God? Yeah. That, that that statement is kind of a blast. The generic God? No, yeah. he's Almighty God. He's not a generic God. There's only one God. There is no other. That that no. that statement there uh, is disturbing. Go ahead. It is. It's it's our God has a, with the big G. Generic right? God. Only after Vatican uh, II. Oh, and these are theologians <clears throat> writing this. Yeah. Wow. Only after Vatican II, with the revision of the rite and the use of the, the, the vernacular, did the faithful become more cognizant of the Trinitarian nature of the liturgy and of their own ability to pray in a trinitarian manner not true that's <laughs> the, anyway. the, the latin the latin mass has always had gloria patria filia spiritu sancti i mean it's always had the trinitarian formula that comes from saint paul in their introductions and in their closings it's yeah. always trinitarian in latin you you the priest blesses you in the name of the trinity at the end and so that that statement is just not a true statement the the one preface that we use it, it, more times than any throughout the year is the, the Trinitarian preface where it explains the Father, the roles of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and uh, it's a beautiful prayer. It kind of, it, it's, it's a great little uh, catechesis on what the Trinity is. 
And so, although many and, and probably most of the faithful attended the liturgy with devotion, except in receiving Holy Communion, and what it means by that, except in receiving Holy Communion, such devotion was not imbued with an informed understanding of the Eucharistic mystery. I think here's what they said. I'm going to give them credit. They're, they're tacitly admitting that people in the Tridentine Mass pre-1965, they understood the theology of mortal sin. And so many of them, even though they went to Mass to fulfill their Sunday obligation based on the Third Commandment, they withheld themselves from receiving the Holy Eucharist because they knew that that was Jesus Christ himself, not a piece of bread. So that's actually, now, you go to any Novus Ordo Mass group, and 99% of the people get up and they go receive Holy Communion. Now, I'm not making any judgments. Who knows? Maybe all of them are in a state of sanctifying grace. They all went to communion within the last month. Confession. No, but yeah, confession within the last month. But I don't know. It sounds to me like uh, people pre-1965 understood the theology of mortal sin and how grave it was, how serious it was to receive communion in that state than people post-1965. Well, I Jesse, think more cavalier. Yeah, well, 25% of Catholics are the only 25% believe in the real presence now. And and I have to believe that's because of Vatican II, because, you know, where they've got everybody and Mrs. Sanchez handing out communion, <laughs> uh, you, you know, giving communion hey, on the how hand. How can we always pick on Mrs. Sanchez? Every <laughs> time this comes up, she her name comes up. <laughs> you know, because that's what... That's what, my, something that's what Father Melito used to always say. <laughs> so, uh, you know, communion the hand, you know, standing up. Stay, stay. Okay. We'll be right back. Stick around for a segment. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526. Two one five one. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus nine one one. Jesse, uh, we're talking about we're reading from an article, uh, the liturgy prior to Vatican II, and these uh, priests obviously they're they they lean to the left because uh, some of the things they're saying is at, at least liturgically they lean liturgically to the left liturgically. I don't know about doctrinally. I think I no, think I've read true. their stuff. They 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 they're orthodox when it comes to doctrine, but. They definitely have a partiality uh, for the Novus Ordo Mass. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you want to take it from there? Uh, we're, yeah. We're... It says, it says um, with, within this overall pastoral situation, a few particulars must be noted. First, while many priests celebrated Mass in a reverent manner, so that's, they admit that, uh, there were those who did not. Same the thing same, in the Novus Ordo. Yeah, same thing. So nothing's changed. Same thing in, 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 in divine liturgies in the Eastern Catholic Church. you got reverent ones and you got people that are doing a, a, you know, a microwave divine liturgy. It says, <laughs> the faithful were aware and often pleased that certain priests were able to run through the liturgy in 15 or 20 minutes, especially on weekdays. Well, again, same thing in the Eastern Catholic, same thing at the Novus Ordo. A vivid description of the state of affairs prior to the council is given in a blog by Monsignor Charles Pope. Uh, he He's... Orthodox, he's a. Uh, I would consider him again. He's a. Again, he's been trained under Vatican II, so he's going to have some partiality towards Vatican II, the, the Vatican II Mass, should I say? Yeah. He says, as for there be no abuses before 1970, dream on. All the old guys I trained under for the Latin Mass back in the mid 1980s 
told me that it was dreadful how the mass was celebrated in the old days. Mumbled Latin, skipped prayers, half genuflections, not even waiting for the service to finish before moving on to the next prayer. Masses that should have taken a good 40 minutes to celebrate reverently were routinely done in 18 minutes. Communion was routinely distributed in larger parishes by priests, beginning immediately after the gospel, while the priest celebrant went on with the current mass. Sung liturgies were abhorred by most clergy when they did when they did sing them. They were usually done in a horrible and tortured tone, with indistinct pronunciations, since they were not used to enunciating the Latin, but mumbling it. So when they sang, most just mumbled aloud. I have heard recordings from the time I, that I can personally affirm that homilies were often skipped, even on Sundays. Most of the old guys said the corpus Domino Nostri prayer while they gave communion to as many as five people, mumbling it as a norm. The liberate Usualis had long been abandoned by most parishes, and they used recto tono, usually the usually eighth tone, chanting in its place. People came left, came late, and left early, and had legalistic notions that if they made it. By the gospel, they were safe. Leaving after communion was epidemic. He, he, he said a whole lot there. By the way, everything he said there could be said about the Novus Ordo Mass as well. So nothing's changed. In other words, you're going to have good priests and bad priests. Uh, Pre-1965, post-1965, you're going to have uh, liberal modernist, uh, you know, lukewarm Catholics. Uh, Pre-1965, post-1965. The only thing I will say is this, objectively speaking, prior to 1965 in the U.S., since this is the country that we live in, this is my country, uh, prior to 1965, I can tell you that uh, 75% to 80% of Catholics went to Mass on Sunday. Uh, yeah. Right now, before COVID, before the scandemic pandemic, uh, about 21 to 22% of people are going to Mass on Sunday. Right now, we're down to about 11 to 12% of people going to Mass on Sunday. So the proof is in the pudding. Much, much, much less. I, I mean, there was a lot of people talking about in the Catholic Church. And I remember I got caught up in that fervor. Uh, the new springtime of evangelization is about to happen. Well, guess what? It's been 60 years. I've been waiting for the new springtime of evangelization. And every single year, less and less people are coming to church. There's a rise in Satanism, a rise in witchcraft. Modernism, masonry, communists are taking political offices or taking places in the Catholic Church. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm still waiting for the springtime. That's why Bishop Schneider just wrote a book, the, the new springtime of evangelization that never came. Yeah. So, yeah, Jesse, some of this, see, they're, they're calling it mumbling. But during the communion prayers, th those prayers are, are offered to God. So they're, they're not meant for us to hear them. So, yeah, you... You, it might sound like mumbling, but they're 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 doing it under their breath. So good point, great yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's like for uh, let's just for example, let's say young lovers, young people that are married, and the husband whispers something to his wife, and they're in a table in a dinner in a restaurant, and all of a sudden the rest of the people at the table says, "What did you whisper to your wife?" You know what the husband should say? It's none of your business. I whispered to her because it's only meant for her ears. It's none of your business. The priest yeah. in the Latin Mass is talking to God on our behalf. We're still receiving the graces from Calvary, the infinite graces from Calvary, whether you listened or didn't listen, because the spigot from Calvary opens up when the priest is praying to God on our behalf, whether you can hear him or not. Yeah. 
So I'm going to skip down that next pair. I'm going to go to go the, the sermons were almost entirely moralistic in nature, focused on the fostering of holy and virtuous lives. In one sense, mo- what's, such what's moral, wrong with that? Such yeah, such moral <laughs> teaching. We don't hear enough of that. We hear social teaching. <laughs> Church, hey, about the pancake social breakfast. justice warriors. Right. What kind of donuts we're having after after mass? Uh, such moral teaching was good and necessary, for it did encourage the keeping of the God's commandments. However, what was often absent was mystagogical catechesis, that is, the bringing to light the mysteries of the faith, the Trinity, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Lord's coming in glory, and the nature of the sacraments, including the Eucharistic liturgy. Thus, most of the faithful never grew in their understanding of the doctrines of the faith beyond what they learned from the catechesis as children. Part of the problem was that few priests themselves ever actually came to understand and marvel at the mysteries of faith. Christianity was reduced to a living a moral life without the full doctrine foundation on which a virtuous life is established and fostered. You could still get to heaven if you're living a moral life. I don't understand it. You know, why aren't we hearing more about the four last things? Why Purgatory and... Uh, Things of that nature. Um, Ruben, let me let, let me make a comment. Under the Novus Ordo Mass post-1965, guess what? The moral life isn't preached in the average Catholic parish either, nor is doctrine or catechesis preached in the average Novus Ordo parish post-1965. That's, that's so right. that, that argument that he made right there cuts both ways. I would say this, in my opinion, from talking to priests, that were trained in the more traditional right, when I talked to them about theology and catechesis and scripture, they seem to be deeper in theology and scripture and catechesis than uh, than, than priests that have been trained in the modern seminaries, where, uh, you know, social justice is, uh, is something that's pushed. Uh, ecumenism is pushed, uh, you know, calling, you know, bringing in Protestants, Making Protestants feel comfortable in the Catholic Mass, that's pushed. To me, when I talk to a, a priest that's been to a traditional seminary, uh, I, I can tell you they're far deeper in theology, especially Thomistic thought, the fathers of the church and the scholastics, than many of the Novus Ordo priests. I, I would even go further and say that, in my opinion, the people, the, the congregants that go to the traditional Latin Mass are uh, deeper in the understanding of their faith than when I was going to the Nova Sordo. And uh, well, I can know. tell you why that is. I'll tell you why. Because the people that go to the Latin mass, they generally just stick to the Baltimore catechism. It's thin, it's readable, it's question and answer format. That's the classical way to teach Catholics. That's called a classical education. Where people that go to the Nova Sordo mass, well, the Baltimore catechism is poo-pooed by many of the DREs. So they're given this big, thick catechism that's eight font. Guess what, Ruben? Nobody reads it. Nobody's going to read a two-inch catechism with eight font, uh, <laughs> especially when any, every couple of years, Pope Francis keeps redacting, redacting, redacting. People yeah. are saying, well, which catechism do I get? It came out in 1992, but it's been redacted like three times, and it's about two inches thick, and it's eight font. You know what? Give me that little blue catechism that's got... 14-inch font that's question and answer and that breaks down the creed, prayer, uh, the commandments, and uh, and the moral life. You know, mm. I, that, that's So you'll find that people that go to the Latin mass communities, 
because they're steeped in the Baltimore Catechism, guess what? That comes from the Council of Trent. That was a dogmatic council. That's why they know their faith quite well. Mm. They're simple, but they know it quite well. Yep. Pius X's catechism as well. So yes. anyway, uh, let, let's let's skip down the council's reforms. Given the momentum and the ecclesiastical approval already given to the liturgical movement, it's not surprising that the opening of that uh, task of Vatican II was the renewal of the liturgy. And the first document ratified by, by the council was the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy, Sancta Sanctum Concilium. Ruben, let's go all the way down. Let's, let's go all the way down. Because right, it talk, because the minute. actual, yeah, we got a minute. That's what I'm saying. It's worth reading this part of the article. Okay, go ahead, Jess. Yeah, where it says, where it says, later the council emphatically concludes. It's okay. going to quote to you the documents of Vatican II itself, and you'll see that many things in Vatican II, we're not talking about pre-Vatican II, after 60 years, they still have not been uh, enacted. For example, it says here, uh, the council says that, uh, uh, again, uh, there's proper times of reverential silence should be observed. It, it talks here about, uh, uh, it talks here about um, that Latin, the, regarding the use of Latin, that's Sacrosanctum 36, uh, with due respect to a particular law, must be preserved in the Latin rites. But since the use of the vernacular, whether in the Mass or the administration of the sacraments or any other parts of the liturgy, may frequently be of great advantage to the people, a wider use may be made of it, especially in the readings, directives, and in some prayers and chants. Sacrosanctum 54. Care must be taken to ensure that the faithful may be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. Again, that's paragraph 36, 54. Uh, it says, uh, paragraph 112, the musical tradition of the church must be kept with pipe organs. What's it talking about? It's talking about Gregorian chant. So when you look at the actual documents of Vatican II on the Mass, I can tell you most of it has not been implemented 60 years later. The Mass never called for banjos and tambourines and electric guitars and basses and drums. Uh, this is not suitable for sacred worship. So I would just tell you, Ruben, that many parts of Vatican II have still not been implemented yes. because the modernists are in charge. The wolves are in charge of the hen house. All right, Jesse. Well said, Jesse. I would just add, hey, you ought to be praying what you should have been praying for the cross 2,000 years ago because that's where you're at when you're at in the Holy Mass. So keep that in mind. I think uh, we're done, Ruben. I don't hear the music. We're done. It's come. Yeah, the music is on. So uh, that's a wrap. That's a wrap, brother. EOW, we're end to watch. God bless you. We'll see you next Christ time, same Christ channel. Keep the faith. Stay tuned for hands-on apologetics with Gary Mashuda. We love you. Keep the faith.